It's a classic security threat. A suspect enters a store, grabs a few items, and bolts out of there. You might be tempted to dispatch guards right away, but... Pursuing somebody down the street, they're either faster than you, they get away, or actually you're faster than them, and then you've got another set of problems to deal with in terms of how you verbally de-escalate. But who is watching the shop while you are not? Could such a scenario be prevented with a more proactive security approach? How many other risks can be mitigated with careful planning and methodical procedures? Natural surveillance, an ability for an owner to exercise territoriality, uh, the management of access control points. These are all features that can make uh, security deliverable or uh, a headache, quite frankly. Mike Franklin has decades of experience with law enforcement, the military, and corporate security. He now works for Lionsgate Risk Management Group. If you fail to deliver a proportional response, you can actually exacerbate the potential for confrontation or actually be the cause of it. We'll take a closer look at how environmental design can make a location safer, the importance of doing community safety assessments, and the five Ps that should be the foundation of your security strategy. Hello there, I'm Tristan Field-Jones and welcome once again to SITREP. Mike Franklin joins us now. And Mike, you have an impressive resume with decades of experience in a variety of fields. So tell us about the work you do and you know how you ended up in the world of security. Yeah, uh, first of all, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to uh, to speak to that and uh, and other issues we're going to discuss today. Um, I'm currently uh, uh, Vice President of uh, Risk Management and Community Safety with Lionsgate Risk Management Group. Uh, and it's really a, a culmination of a, a journey through a, a variety of security backgrounds in my career, all of which I would call progressive. Um, I have military service with the Royal Air Force in the U UK, uh, which brings its own security challenges. 18 years policing with Northamptonshire Police, also in the UK. Uh, I then moved to Canada. Uh, my wife convinced me to move to Canada and no regrets there. And uh, I've had a role with municipality, crime reduction role. And I've also worked as the director of screening operations at YVR, Vancouver International Airport. So I think my advantage is that I've had that cross-sector experience and exposure and it allows me when addressing security to look across the piece uh, rather than coming at it from one experiential perspective. Well, and there are so many areas of expertise we could uh, cover with you, uh, but the key theme throughout our discussions, and this I think arises through your work, is the importance of being proactive versus reactive. And I'm sure a lot of people listening have heard those terms before. And we'll dive deeper into specific uh, examples and specific ways companies and organizations can adopt this mentality. But let's just start with a broad overview. When we talk about proactive versus reactive security, what is meant by that? Uh, you know, I think there's a, a, a really good analogy that uh, that actually comes from the medical world, and it's an old adage, but it uh, will resonate very quickly with anyone listening. Uh, and that is, prevention is better than cure. Uh, you know, if if you can get in ahead proactively and offset uh, the likelihood of security incidents, 
then there are so many good reasons why you should do that rather than simply have a response orientated, uh, uh, you know, reaction. And Mike, why don't we talk a little bit about some of the specific uh, methods that we can go about this? There are so many ways to tackle this, but I think one of the most interesting aspects, and I, I read this uh, on your company's website, involves um, environmental design, specifically building safe spaces to mitigate threats well into the future. I, I guess in a way you could say this is probably the most proactive uh, way to approach security because, you know, you might be building a space or you might have a, a, a an, an empty area essentially something that doesn't even exist and you're already thinking about security. So how does the physical construction of a location, you know, that environmental design we talk about, how does that impact security? Uh, it's it's uh, it's been of some interest for quite some time. Uh, I mean, if I can just quickly encapsulate this, you know, our law enforcement resources uh, in any country uh, find themselves responding to locations that had they been better designed would have been less susceptible to crime and or nuisance activity. So really the opportunity to get in at the outline planning stage and work with architects and designers uh, to actually design out criminogenic features and also to guide them toward uh, what I would call community safety enhancements is by far the, uh, the best way and proactively uh, to ensure that those uh, those buildings uh, arrive, they are sustainably protectable, uh, and there's nothing worse than uh, the additional cost burden that comes from having to fit aftermarket solutions when it doesn't work. So let's talk a little bit more about these examples. Can you give us a few examples, and, and not necessarily a specific building or or location, but can you give us a few examples in terms of what might be something that would be considered bad environmental design from a security perspective? One of the key issues uh, that we confront, clients confront with buildings that are poorly designed is they're not set up for good natural surveillance uh, or even formal surveillance uh, if required. Uh, they're not landscaped sympathetically to support that ambition. Uh, they don't have, and you see with, with business, uh, you know, business product is a priority. Uh, so often, uh, you know, I've, I've mentioned previously uh, uh, that security is uh, seen as a grudge purchase. Anything that interferes with business operational functionality uh, and creates an imposition can be challenging. If you get in at the design stage, uh, you design a functional building uh, that minimizes opposition, preserves aesthetic, which you can do, uh, even with security in there. You include discrete security. Uh, you also provide uh, an inviting, safe environment, which is gonna have so many side benefits. Design, uh, natural surveillance, an ability for an owner to exercise territoriality controllably, uh, the management of access control points, both vehicle and pedestrian, uh, these are all features that can make uh, security deliverable or uh, a headache, quite frankly. Interesting uh, dichotomy there that you mentioned in terms of these can be 
uh, these uh, points you bring up can be well run or they can also make uh, your life more miserable, I guess. Talk a little bit more about that. How is it those all like you mentioned, for instance, the vehicle access points or pedestrian access points as one area or just managing uh, the, 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 the location, wherever that may be. Can you maybe give us an example of where, you know, for instance, something that you mentioned can be a blessing and a curse at the same time? Because I think to some people anyway, a lot of the things you mentioned as ways of being proactive would, would come across as, as positive overall. Yeah, I can give you a, a, an example. Uh, no client shall be named, of course, but, right. uh, you know, uh, business uh, is often predicated on the ability to actually uh, either move product in or out of a business environment. Uh, and often, you know, excess access, particularly vehicle access, uh, is part of the plan for ensuring that uh, ability. Uh, but, you know, you talked about blessing and curse. Uh, the blessing is that business continues unobstructed. Uh, the curse is that access for anyone of nefarious intent uh, can also continue unobstructed because they have multiple options to access you, your product, uh, or your facilities. So uh, by limiting that choice, uh, you present uh, a more significant obstacle to anyone with offending intent. Okay. Um, let's say your company or your organization is in a mall or is in a large office tower and you don't necessarily have the uh, flexibility to, you know, maybe construct a safe space or to renovate an existing space. What are your options at that point for environmental design? Uh, it's to expand really the mindset to, uh, to not look uh, in a silo way at just your own premises. It's about recognizing using the mall example you've just given that there is a, a wider mall community that could be engaged uh, and work with you uh, to create a more substantial uh, layer of protection so you know good communication uh, recognizing that maybe uh, some communal security is going to be part of the package there uh, i'm sure you've seen it in malls that uh, you have security personnel walking around the mall uh, they're not there just to serve the uh, management company that runs the mall, but they're also there to provide a service to the uh, tenants. And of course, it's part of the inducement for tenants to, uh, uh, you know, to uh, to be on the, on site. So uh, it's community. Uh, it's looking beyond your own uh, silo requirements, often, uh, and into uh, that broader. Uh, community safety that uh, that can be provided the whole world. So it it requires collaboration, cooperation, uh, clear lines of responsibility, uh, all achievable uh, and in a proactive way. And we'll chat a little bit further about the importance of doing a community safety assessment and how that factors into security. But one last question I have regarding the environmental design aspect of this. Uh, let's say you do have the ability to renovate a space. You can gut the interior of your store or your office and design it from scratch or even make modifications to the building itself. How can you best incorporate a safer space, uh, even though you aren't really 
building it from scratch and maybe you have an older building, let's say, as an example, but how can you incorporate a safer and more secure space if you do end up doing major renovations to that location? Well, I think that uh, design component, and let's, let's be clear here, new build isn't just uh, or isn't the only area where uh, you can have an influence. Uh, and, and really, uh, the world is uh, um, full, full of existing build that is experiencing problems. Design is part of the solution. I'm going to give you a quick example. Uh, did some work for uh, a significant bank where they were experiencing problems uh, servicing their ATMs, so their uh, automatic telling machines. So, uh, and it was largely uh, an issue of the distance from the vault with cash to actually reload those machines. Uh, it was accessible through the uh, publicly occupied space uh, of, of, of the bank, um, and it was a problem. Uh, the simple solution was actually to construct in that existing premise uh, an additional wall which separated that public space from that uh, um, cash reloading point. So uh, you can change space. Uh, I do recognize that established buildings, uh, particularly heritage buildings, are not uh, amenable to structural change, but you can either change design uh, or adjust procedures uh, to create a safer safer operating space and environment. Okay. We touched on it a little bit here, but let's move on to community safety assessments. And I think this really uh, works well with the previous point you were mentioning regarding uh, uh, regarding uh, if you're located in a mall or an office tower or that sort of thing. Now, maybe let's use the scenario of you're opening an office in a new city or moving to a different neighborhood. Nowadays, you can find lots of information regarding, let's say, crime rates. A lot of police departments will have crime maps available online. You can research crime rates for specific areas. You can even look for the prevalence of certain incidents like assaults or break-ins or car theft, that sort of thing. Um, and again, if we uh, use any of the technology out there, I mean, it's super easy to get a street level view of almost any city around the world nowadays and to get satellite imagery of all that stuff. So, Mike, when we look at all of that information at our disposal that you can access for little to no cost, why do a community safety assessment in the first place, especially if, again, you can just do all this research on your own? Doing that research is fantastic, uh, but being able to analyze and interpret that research is just as important as you look for proportional decision-making. Before you actually occupy that block, uh, you need to know what's going on there. Uh, you need to know how that community dynamic, particularly in terms of crime and nuisance, could affect your business and the nature of your business. Quick example, uh, going back to a UK project I worked on uh, we had a major leisure center set up in the middle of uh, of, of a town. Um, and sometime after they established themselves on the site, they asked the question, uh, why didn't law enforcement tell me there was a red light district in the vicinity? Um, and really, the answer to that question is, well, you didn't ask. Uh, so you really need to do the research. You need to look around. Uh, there's nothing that will substitute actually visiting the location if you can and getting your own feel for the uh, uh, the neighborhood dynamic. And I think you mentioned a few points there, but 
when a security professional examines uh, or investigates a neighborhood beyond kind of the crime rates and sort of the stereotypical safety stuff, if you will, what are some other factors that they will look at that maybe a lot of people may not consider? Yeah, I think, you know, intelligence is the lifeblood of um, of security. It is for law enforcement as well. Um, and, you know, to rely on a single set of data uh, is, is, is often a mistake because there are numerous factors that you can actually glean information from uh, that should inform your either decision to occupy or a decision as to the level of security you need to employ uh, in the area. So, uh, you know, it's very very clear to me that uh, intelligence um, is a critical component. Uh, the, the more you know uh, about your situation, the better informed you are in terms of your strategic decision making and your business decision making going forward. And again, uh, you know, intelligence gathering isn't just simply gathering information from social media. It involves a, a variety of different techniques. Uh, and again, the uh, predominant skill there that's absolutely essential is being able to interpret and analyze the data. You know, what is a significant and real threat and what is just what I would call chaff that's clogging the airways. And and drill down on that a little bit. I'd be curious to know more in terms of the uh, analysis procedures that are used for looking at this information and sorting out uh, the noise versus what is actually uh, helpful? Uh, if you look at uh, intelligence analysis, uh, what do you want somebody to be able to glean from information? First of all, you want them to have a broad experience of a wider range of issues so that they can actually measure it. Um, you know, we have a, a reputation, uh, frankly, over law enforcement for actually predicting more closely the impact of, for example, uh, a protest or activist activity for client sites. Uh, and we have a, a stronger hit ratio in terms of uh, the size of that. And the reason we do that and, and have that capability is because quite honestly, we are able to dedicate the time to monitoring those situations closely. Um, and where with the burden that law enforcement has, they cannot. So. Our clients look at that, they rely on it, they make decisions based on that, and it allows them to be uh, risk proportionate in terms of how they respond. You know, the, the question I often ask myself is, um, why do corporations, why do businesses uh, more often adopt a, a, a response uh, approach to dealing with issues? In other words, uh, you know, when it happens to us, we'll deal with it, um, rather than actually getting ahead of the problem occurring. I really believe that uh, that mindset in the uh, private sector uh, is born actually of the way that uh, it operates in public service. So, you know, law enforcement uh, really uh, is predominantly about detection, investigation, arrest, and potentially incarceration or sanction of some sort. So it's what I would call a very post-incident investigative approach. And I think this dovetails really nicely into the conversation that we had just moments ago about gathering intelligence. We referred to it more specifically in terms of doing a community assessment and looking at neighborhoods. But 
you know, inevitably threats will emerge. Inevitably, you might be dealing with civil unrest or you might be uh, uh, dealing with uh, even things that are outside of your control. I mean, we've seen turmoil around the world increasing in many, many different aspects. Um, and one of the things that I know, uh, Mike, that you mentioned involves a proportional response. You know, you, you may have uh, you, you may have, let's say, someone who may be suspected of shoplifting in a store. Well, your response to that is going to be very different compared to if you have 50 protesters outside of your office or if you're dealing with an active shooter or if you're or, or even if you're looking at kind of, you know, the increasing threat of climate change and those sorts of things. So drill down a little bit more in terms of the in, the importance of intelligence gathering and how that relates to the proportionality of the response required for whatever event it may be. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, we've already identified that there is a need for an intelligence-led approach, um, you know, and data analysis in support of strategic decision-making. You need to know who your adversaries are, whether they're outsiders or insiders in your organization. Uh, you know, and are the threats, what are the threats that they, uh, they present? Um, it's worth emphasizing that a lot of organizations uh, I deal with actually pay lip service to intelligence. Uh, they don't look at it to any significant degree. So they need jerk to security responses. If you fail to deliver a proportional response, you can actually exacerbate the potential for confrontation or actually be the cause of it. Uh, a good example of that would be the shoplifting, uh, uh, you know, scenario you painted a brief picture of there. Uh, if you send uh, a large number of security in response to that, uh, which is clearly heavy handed, uh, you may antagonize and actually exacerbate uh, a higher level of confrontation. If you're utilizing your proactive and installed security to judge that response, uh, you can be far more effective on the ground. I want to use a quick policing uh, response uh, example here. Um, we had a, a town center incident uh, which was picked up by a closed circuit television control room and where an individual had secreted a knife on the air person. This was picked up on camera. Uh, the response was appropriate, but again, it wasn't heavy handed. So they were able to um, isolate the knife because they knew exactly where it was very quickly and didn't incur the, uh, you know, the injuries that might have uh, been the consequence had they not been so well informed. So, you know, intelligence comes in a variety of guises. Uh, proportionality is cri critical. I want to use the protest and activism example as well. Uh, if you have an expected uh, protest or uh, activism, which uh, looks like it's going to materialize at your event, uh, and if you've looked at the intelligence provided to you, you know, by a professional security company, uh, they will develop a concept of operations which will tell you what resources you need so you don't handpick a number of security personnel uh, that's out of proportionality. So it's balance, it's having what you need, no more than what you need. And actually businesses expect that because they don't want to spend more than they have to, uh, nor do they want to be caught cold because they don't have enough security protection. And that moves into the world of potential litigation as well, which is another reason why proactive security is so critical.
Yeah, and we will certainly touch on the, the legal aspect to all of this as well. I, I think another angle that's interesting too, uh, if we just uh, quickly touch on the, the shoplifter as an example, let's say someone is in fact shoplifting from a store and you send 10 security guards after them, uh, chances are you're going to attract the attention of someone with a phone who's going to film it and post it on YouTube or who knows where. And and, and in, in this day and age, Mike, you know, when everyone's got a camera on hand and when everyone can so easily share this with the world, that proportionality becomes so essential because we've seen what happens when there are extreme responses to certain events. It, it sparks a backlash. It sparks outrage. And I, I, listening to what you're saying just really drives home the point of why it's so crucial to know the threat and to properly assess it, because the last thing you want to deal with is a security threat and a PR disaster at the same time, which could have its own whole host of separate consequences. You're absolutely right. And actually, the way that you uh, manage that is, you know, not immediately in response to a threat, it's by having a foundation, which is what I would call the uh, the five P's. So, you know, policy, protocol, procedure, um, process management. Um, it seems it, this conversation is largely driven by P's as well with proportionality uh, and, and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, proactivity, another P, uh, by having those right uh, P's in place, means that your response knows where the line is, uh, knows what their responsibilities are in uh, handling an incident, and knows what obstacles they could confront that could get them into hot water, frankly. So uh, pursuing somebody down the street uh, only really has one outcome. They're either faster than you, they get away, or actually you're faster than them. And then you've got another set of problems to deal with in terms of how you verbally de-escalate. Do you have those skills? Uh, they can be trained, uh, but who is watching the shop while you are not uh, at the same time? We often encounter distraction techniques used uh, which focus security in one area while somebody else is doing the dirty deed, so to speak, in another. So, um, you know, the proactivity here is having what the company wants you to do, uh, how they want you to do it, uh, and, 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 you know, why they want you to do it a certain way. All important proactive responses. Okay, let's touch on lit litigation here and preventing yourself from getting sued, which again goes back to our point on proportionality here. Uh, because if you send a ton of security guards against one teenage kid who's stealing, you know, a candy bar, for instance, that doesn't look good for anybody involved in terms of that. But what would be some ways to legally protect yourself so if, if all else fails, at least you have a secure legal framework to fall back on where you can say, we did what we could and we followed the rules as best as we could. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, when it comes to it, you're uh, either standing in a dock and uh, being scrutinized or, or, you know, investigated in that regard. Um, you know, you really have to demonstrate that what you've done is reasonable and prudent, uh, given the risk circumstances. So... Uh, you need to be able to do that. Uh, you, you need to know what your legislative responsibilities are. Responsibility is not the right word. Requirements. Uh, there are many that companies uh, fall short on. 
I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Uh, occupier's liability and duty of care. Um, in terms of harassment and violence uh, under the Labor Code now, uh, there's a requirement to have, uh, you know, uh, a violence and harassment program in place, which includes training for staff. Uh, that's reasonable and proof. Not having it is not. So you leave yourself open to exposure if you don't cover that. Uh, you need to undertake with security privacy impact assessments so that whatever it is you're employing in security is appropriate, fit for purpose, and proportionate to the risk. Uh, overkill with video surveillance can be seen as invasive. Um, and, you know, there are plenty of contingency lawyers out there that would look at the quick wins available where companies are exposed and don't meet those legislative requirements. Without naming names and, you know, protecting the guilty in this case, have you come across any shocking instances of reactive security in a situation that could have been less severe had it been handled properly? And again, protecting the innocent slash guilty, depending on how you see it. Yeah, I can give you uh, um, an example that's quite shocking, actually. Um, it does involve... Uh, the equivalent of a municipality uh, video surveillance and CCTV controller. It does involve a conversation with law enforcement. So I'm going to get to the nub of this. Uh, and again, no names uh, at all. Uh, the conversation was along the lines of, and this is the control room speaking to law enforcement. We've just spotted uh, a priority prolific offender moving into uh, the town center. And he has a house brick in his hand and we think he's intent on causing damage. Very sadly, in the situation, and this is anecdotal to me, but it does illustrate your point, the response from law enforcement was, can you please give us a call when he does damage? <laughs> wow. I mean, that's got to make someone like you, Mike, just cringe. It, it, it does, but uh, this, this is where you have uh, a challenge in terms of taking out a significant offender. And that is, do you want to pick them up for essentially going a quick to offend? Or do you want to have them see significantly greater time potentially in incarceration because you've managed to pick them up for a, a higher level offense? And the real challenge, again, goes back to our earlier conversation. And that is, do we really need a, a, a post-incident uh, investigative approach or should we proactively intervene to prevent the uh, the issue exacerbating to any level so should we be tackling the issue upstream when it's a trickle or then managing it or trying to manage it downstream when it's a raging torrent yeah really good analogy there um i always like to end these episodes with a bit of advice or a bit of you know some some takeaway for the audience because again it's really easy for us to identify problems but i always appreciate it when our guests provide some insight and some advice to the security professionals listening these the the intelligence gathering and the proportionality and everything that you mentioned mike sounds like great ideas but i'm sure we have some smaller businesses smaller organizations maybe charities listening to this who may say we just don't have the budget for all of all of these options that are being discussed um, what would be some of your advice for those smaller organizations, uh, or again, for nonprofits, as an example, who may not have the same amount of money or, or resources at their disposal to try and enact 
and adopt this proactive versus reactive mentality without taking out a huge chunk of their budgets, if at all possible? Yeah, you know, well, that's a very good question. And, and the answer lies in scalability. Uh, you know, a lot of smaller businesses, uh, smaller concerns uh, would simply rely on their ability to react to incidents because that whole proactivity becomes uh, either cost prohibitive to them or, or they just don't have the time in terms of running business uh, uh, to address those areas. I would say that, uh, you know, a solution is scalable. Uh, it's proportionate to the premises. So I might be speaking to a large corporation uh, with multiple facilities, multiple sites that operations I I internationally. Uh, I might be talking and do to the corner shop. Well, you know, the same principles apply in terms of an ability to be proactive. You just pull out different tools from the box in terms of proactivity, uh, into, you know, to deal with it. You might not be able to afford a video surveillance system, uh, but you might be able to afford a second member of staff in the corner store so that if one is distracted, uh, you know, for a period of time and at times of high risk, uh, you can have somebody else watching the store. Uh, you might be able to dedicate a little bit more time to establishing when incidents are occurring and when you need to focus that additional resource. So there are simple proactive options uh, that you can actually recourse to. Uh, and that again is where a security professional should step in because they should be able to discern what you can achieve, what you cannot, uh, you know, what your specific client needs are, regardless of the size of your business uh, and what you should be doing to uh, to address the problem. So scalable. What would be some general advice overall for the security professional out there trying to navigate this post-pandemic chaos? I mean, again, we we're recovering from COVID-19 and just as we're doing that, then we see conflict break out in Ukraine. And on top of that, we're seeing an increase in civil unrest. I mean, the list keeps growing, not to mention the climate change threats, the cyber threats, whatever it is. So we've got these security professionals dealing with all sorts of concerns. So from your perspective, Mike, what would be just some advice to try and keep in mind the proactive versus reactive as everyone has so much to, to juggle? Yeah, I think uh, it, it comes down to one thing ultimately, and it really wraps up everything we've discussed today. And, and that is, uh, you know, security professionals should be recommending to any client that they adopt a security management program approach. Uh, I speak to program because uh, a, a program is dynamic. Um, it, it's dealing with risk in real time. Uh, again, it comes back to proportionality. Um, everything that we've spoken about thus far is wrapped up in uh, in a security management program. So line by line, you're able to go through with the client on, you know, what they can do to deter, what they can do to detect, what they can do to delay or deny, uh, and all of that ahead of how they can respond so they have uh, a surviving business and business continuity, and they actually have the resilience in place to deal with issues. So it's a security management program it's dynamic. It's not dormant. It's not a plan that just sits on the shelf and gathers dust, uh, becoming dated the day after it's printed. Uh, it's something that's moving forward in tandem with risk all of the time. 
Mike, I realize we've probably just scratched the surface because there are so many other angles we could cover. We will certainly have you back on the show in the future uh, to get some more insight into other security uh, uh, aspects for sure, because this has been a phenomenal conversation. So thank you very much uh, for your insight. Uh, If people want to find out more about you or the company you work for, where can they go? Um, Be happy to hear from, but uh, I would say uh, our website, which is www.lgrmg.ca. So that's Lionsgate Risk Management Group.ca. Uh, give us a call. Um, you know, 604 Um And I'm happy to have a conversation with anyone who wants me to expand on or clarify any of the uh, information I provide. Okay. Uh, Mike, thanks again. Mike Franklin, he is Vice President of Risk Management and Community Safety at Lionsgate Risk Management Group, joining us on SITREP. I'm Tristan Field-Jones. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email me at sitrep at samdesk.io or follow us on Twitter at samdeskofficial. Until next time, stay safe out there.